the core of discovery, led by Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, is said by many to be the most momentous expedition uh, in American history, perhaps even one of the greatest adventure stories in all time. Their task, in the words of uh, President Thomas Jefferson, was this. This is actually taken from some of their correspondence. The object of your mission is to explore the Missouri River and such principal streams of it as by its course and communication with the waters of the Pacific Ocean, whether the Columbia, Oregon, Colorado, or any other river, may offer the most direct and practicable water communication across this continent for the purposes of commerce. The preparation was extensive. It had to be. Um, Lewis, Lewis uh, took himself to study or uh, disciplined himself to, to study such things as astronomy and botany and navigation and medicine and biology. Uh, he had to have an enormous stock of supplies, some two tons worth of stuff that they took on this venture. Guns, ammunition, medical supplies, scientific instruments, all of it. Again, some two tons. Um, because they, they had some idea, at least, of what it was that they were going to be facing. And I've, I've wondered at times, you know, as, as they stood there on the precipice, stood there on the edge of the cliff, if you will, uh, metaphorically speaking, about to take that first step, that first great step out from St. Louis towards St. Charles and further on out west. Did they lie awake at night wondering, do we really know what we're getting ourselves into? Um, do we really know what it's going to take? Do we really have an idea of the way forward? In the last few weeks, we have been in this little mini-series of a little subset of the life of Peter. And Peter and the other disciples are at the a precipice, if you will, I would say. They're right on the, the edge of a cliff, about to move forward. And, and, you know, did they know what it would take? Did they have an understanding of the way forward as Jesus was sending them? And do we? encourage you, if you've got a Bible with you this morning, to turn with me to John's Gospel. This is the fourth of the four Gospels that we have. John's Gospel. We're going to go to the last chapter of John's Gospel. So Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, and John. If you've hit Acts, you've, it's a great book, but you've just gone a little too far. Uh, we're in John 21, and we're going to read verses 1 through 19. John 21, verses 1 through 19. Hear now the word of God. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two others of his, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, We will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. 
The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to them, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But you, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, Follow me. Let's pray together. Oh, thank you, Lord, for this law that is perfect, that revives the soul. We thank you for this, your testimony that is sure, that makes wise the simple. We thank you for your precepts that are right, that rejoice the heart. We thank you for your commands that are pure, that enlighten our eyes. We thank you for this really instills the fear and reverence and awe of you and is clean and endures forever. Your rules are true and righteous all together. And little wonder the psalmist goes on to say that these words are to be more desired than gold, sweeter than honey. Oh, we need this. We need this desperately. We pray, uh, we have read now, we ask that you would bless this reading. We ask that you would enrich it. Uh, we ask that you would give us, as, as our forebearers said, we ask that you would dig ears for us to hear and soften our hearts that we might be touched and shaped by this your word. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, we have a way of making things more complicated than they need to be. Uh, some of you may know if you follow college football at all. Yes, that's right. College football here in the spring. It's true. Many schools yesterday had their spring game. I saw some clips of uh, UT out in Knoxville, some of what they had going on in Blacksburg. Uh, Virginia Tech had their orange and maroon game. Schools all across the, the country have, have the, the spring game. And uh, there's two different schools of thought uh, coaches have, typically, uh, as to uh, these, these spring games and what to make of them. There's one I'll call the game clock school of thought, and that goes like this. I just want to get this thing over with. 
If we can just have this game and not get anybody hurt, I'm good with that. That's all I want. That's the game clock school of thought. The other school of thought is more like the spotlight. And that's where it's the fans, the players, and the coaches, they're looking forward to the game because they want to know what they've got. They want to see who's going to show up. When the lights go on, metaphorically, they play in the afternoon, but when the lights go on, who shows up? Who's going to shine? Who's going to really show up to play? What do we have to work with? It would seem that, you know, all things considered, that's probably, you know, it is a football team. They have pads. They have helmets. They're meant to play. They're meant to hit each other. It seems like that would be the way to go. We, we make things a bit more complicated than they need to be, and I would say we do the same in the Christian life. Um, you know, we have books. We have seminars. We have podcasts. We have conferences. We have, you name it, we've got it. More riches when it comes to asking and answering this question, what does it mean to, to, to live the Christian life? We're overwhelmed, we're deluged with all these answers as to what does it mean to be a Christian, and live the Christian life, when really it's actually fairly simple. It's not nearly as complicated as we make it out to be. I'm not knocking all the conferences and the books, and we need them as a place for them, but here's your answer. The Christian life is about following Jesus. That's what it means to live the Christian life. The scene here before us, uh, here in John 21. Sea of Galilee. It's a familiar place uh, to these men. Uh, some of them, this is their home. It's where they, they grew up, right there on the shores. Uh, for all of them, it's where they have spent the vast majority of the last three years there in the course of Jesus' ministry. They're, they're fishing. That's a familiar task uh, to them. Some of them were fishermen by, by trade. This has been a tumultuous period of time, a stretch of days. It's just been emotionally just, they're a wreck. I mean, they've gone from the heights of Palm Sunday to the depths of Good Friday, to the wonder of Easter Sunday. What a roller coaster. And now here's Jesus showing up again. And it's interesting how John describes it. And it, 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 I don't know if you caught it, uh, but, but his phrasing is rather interesting. Verse 1, After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, that's another way, by the way, just referring to the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Verse 14, this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Three times in those two verses, John uses this word, reveal. The idea being that, that something that was unknown is being made known. Something that was unseen was now being seen. Now what was it? We get a clue, I think, in verse 19. The very last thing, what, what, and that's actually repeated there just a couple verses later, where Jesus says to Peter, what? Follow me! What's being revealed here in John 21 is two things. One, who we are to follow. And two, what it means to follow him. That's being unveiled. It's being revealed. We're giving a chance to see this. Or put another way, the Christian life simply means to follow Christ. The Christian life simply means to follow Christ. You need to 
what Jesus is showing us here is that we need to look to him at every step. The Christian life means to follow Christ. We need to be looking to him at every step and in, even, even in these arenas, these three arenas as they show themselves uh, here in this passage. One, following Christ, looking to him in our failure. Following Christ, looking to him for our growth. Following Christ, looking to him with our service. All of that, and maybe more, we see here uh, in this passage. Well, let's look at this here. What does Peter learn, and what do we learn along with him here? Uh, in our failure, you know, recap, thinking back. You know, remember just a few days prior, Peter had very strongly, very confidently said, I will go with you to prison and to death. Everyone else may leave you. Everyone else may betray you. Everyone else may deny you. I will not. And there in that courtyard, just a few hours later, under less than intense scrutiny, he crumbled under very little pressure at all. What does following Christ look like when we blow it? When we fail? When we've crumbled? Two vital things to remember. Our failure is never surprising to him. Our failure is never surprising to him. Jesus knew this was coming. He told Peter it was coming. He predicted this. It's a forewarning that he gave, which means then that, that in that look, we talked about this last week, in that look, as Jesus looked across that courtyard at his dear, dear friend, he was saddened but not shocked by what had happened here. And in fact, beyond that, he pursues him. After it's all said and done, he pursues him. I mean, what's happening here in John 21? Jesus is drawing near to Peter and these men. He is pursuing them. He is chasing after them. Who, who is it, by the way, that instigates this whole thing? This whole fishing venture on the Sea of Galilee that then hearkens their memories back to another fishing venture, another miraculous catch from just three years earlier on that same body of water. Who is it that's behind that? Who is it that invites them to come join him for breakfast there around that little campfire and even ennobles them by saying, come, bring me some of what you caught. This is Jesus. Jesus is never su surprised by our failure. That's the first thing I think it's vital for us to understand. Our failure is never surprising to him. This is the second thing. Our failure is never final with him. Peter doesn't get shelved. That's not what's going on here at all. We have a renewed assignment that uh, we see Jesus giving to Peter. Three times Jesus said to him, Feed ten my lambs, my sheep. Three times. In essence saying, Peter, I'm not giving up on you. I'm not giving up on you. In fact, I'm going to continue just as I have been before. I'm going to continue working in you and through you. Something else Jesus says to him that, that, that bolsters this all the more, especially when we understand it in the right way in the context of what Jesus is saying, verses 18 and, and 19, it, it seems almost jarring, but it actually it does fit. 
When Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. This is a prediction, a prophecy of how Peter's end in this life was going to come. About 30 years later, he was crucified. So what is Jesus telling Peter? Peter, you are going to follow me. You are going to walk with me. You are going to serve me. You're going to be so closely identified with me in the years to come that you are going to suffer grievously in my name. Which is exactly what Peter wanted to hear. He wants to be a follower of Christ. And Jesus is saying, you are. You are, and you will be. The Christian life means following Christ. It means it demands looking to him in our failure. Now, why is this important? Two things. One, our inevitable failure. We, we will blow it. That's the first reason why this is so important for us to grapple with. The second reason is this, what our typical response is to that inevitable failure. Our typical response is one of two things, and sometimes this messy combination of the two things, but I'll just separate them out for argument's sake, these two things. On the one hand, we give up. We'll give up and fall into despair. Or... We'll just pull up the bootstraps, grit the teeth, and try harder. And either one, if you've tried either one enough, you know those are inevitable formulas for heartache. Um, and perhaps even just utterly drifting away for some period of time. The lesson that Peter is learning here is, Jesus is saying, Peter, my friend, Follow me, and as you follow me, you need to look to me. And yes, even in your failure, it's not what you think. It's not as you've been programmed. Not with me. Not with me. Thomas Edison, the uh, inventor, he and his team, the inventor of the, I guess it's the incandescent light bulb. Um, you know, it would take in the early goings, it would take. Hundreds of hours to make those things. Uh, it's a true story. It, it seems that after one of those sessions of, of the team working together to, to build one of those precious little things, uh, Edison then turned to this young errand boy there in the lab and said, okay, I want you to take this light bulb upstairs to the testing room. And the kid took the light bulb and turned, and as he turned, he tripped. And he fell, and the light bulb shattered on, on the steps. And Here's the surprising thing. Rather than rebuking the kid, Edison pulled him aside, reassured him, it's okay, and then he turned to his team and said, start making another bulb. Several days later, bulb, new bulb is made. Edison calls the same kid over to him and says, come here. Here's the bulb. Would you please take it upstairs? Now imagine what that did for that kid. 
the reassurance that that gave him. I have no idea where Thomas Edison's heart was in that moment. I don't know enough, thing, enough about the man's biography. Maybe you guys can tell me. All I can tell you is that's a Jesus moment in the life of that kid. That reinstatement and comfort uh, that, that he gave. Follow Jesus. We have to, following Jesus means in, even in our failure. It also means, and this is tied right to that, a sequel of that, for our growth. What does it mean? What does it mean to follow Christ and to grow in our faith? What does that take? What does it involve to mature in our faith? Well, I think what we see here is, is at least this. It's, um, it's not what we would ask. It's not what we would initially sign on for. I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis's quote from A Grief Observed. It goes like this. What do people mean when they say, I am not afraid of God because I know He is good? Have they never been to a dentist? Pain. How does the growth come with pain? Peter wants restoration. He is eager. He is desperate for it. You know how you see it? The moment he's got a hope of being reunited with Jesus, the moment John, this is the pattern that you see in John's Gospel, John gets it first, Peter acts first. That's what you see here. John gets it. Who is it? It's Jesus. Peter, boom, he's in the water. He's going you know, to go see him. He's eager. He's desperate. He's desperate. How else do you see it? Well, the moment that Jesus says, hey, go get some fish, Peter's all over. He's getting the, the whole net. He's hauling it out. He's likely the one that, that counted the, the fish there. Um, he's grieved, though. You know, he, he's desperate for the reinstatement, desperate for the reconciliation, mm, but he's grieved by those questions. You see, he doesn't want to deal with the elephant in the room. Who does? Jesus does. Jesus says, no, we are going there. We are going there. All this takes place around a charcoal fire. You know where the last place was we saw a charcoal fire in John's Gospel? The only other time you see a charcoal fire in God's, John's Gospel? in that courtyard of the chief priest. Jesus is setting Peter up. I don't mean that in a bad way. But in the best possible sense, Jesus is setting Peter up visually and now with the threefold questions, recreating the scene for that threefold denial there in that courtyard. It's... Uh, He's, not, he's just determined not to pass this over, but to bring the pain. But not without purpose. Understand that Peter's not just, he's not being tortured. It's not torture that Jesus is doing, it's surgery. It's not the rack, it's the operating room. 
For starters, because Jesus does all this in the presence of the other disciples, it allows then Peter to be reinstated as a leader of the disciples. It has to be that way. It has to be that way. But going even deeper than that, Jesus is determined to bring about some deep healing with Peter, to wash out the wounds, to reset all these broken bones. He's not, he's not asking these questions repeatedly. He's not repeatedly asking these questions because he doubts Peter's love. He wants to draw it out. Jesus doesn't need to hear it. He knows Peter needs to say it. He's being so gracious here, so kind, giving Peter an opportunity to erase that horrible memory and create something over top of it. So kind, so gracious, and it hurt like hell. The Christian life means following Christ. Even in our growth. Even in our growth. And earlier in John's Gospel, keep your thumb here in John 21, just a few chapters earlier in John 15, Jesus uh, there on that night, and John records so much for us in terms of the conversation there in the context of the Lord's Supper and the washing of the disciples' feet and uh, so much... Uh, so many other things there. In John 15, though, uh, we, Jesus tells us something of how this has got to be. Uh, verses 1 and 2, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Okay, so what does a vine dresser do? In essence, two things, as, as Jesus describes it here. On the one hand, He's going to cut off unfruitful branches and then do away with them. He will also take out a knife and to all the other ones, he will pare them down to a stub. If branches have feelings, if they have nerve endings, this would hurt. It would feel like you're being killed. It would feel like a living death to be pruned. But it's for the purpose of fruit. Why is this important? Because Jesus is determined to bring about fruit in my life and in yours. Which means he's going to bring out the knife. And he's going to cut. And sometimes that cut goes really, really deep. Now our response to that usually goes like this. Hell no. <laughs> I don't see a point in this. He must hate me. But that's not it at all. That's not it at all. 
which is important to hear, especially when you're tempted to run away from him while he's holding the knife. See, Jesus is showing Peter there by that seashore. And in following me, you need to look to me. And you need to do so in my, in, for fruitfulness and growth and maturing in your faith. It's not what you think. It's not as you feel. Not with me. Lastly, with our service. Looking to him. Following him. What do we learn? At least these two things. First, Always dependent. Always dependent. Uh, fishing is a metaphor that Jesus uses all the time. That 153 fish, uh, it, it's, it's so obviously a, a detail of, that points us to that this is an eyewitness account. This is an historic document. These, these people, John knows what he's talking about here. But at the same time, it's something of a metaphor. It's something, uh, it points us towards something. Remember what, what Jesus called the disciples to be fishers of men. And, and time and time again, which by the way is, is, is pointing, it's using an analogy, it's using an image that's pointing to their strength, pointing to a point of their experience. So many of them were fishermen, you know. They know what it is to fish. And yet time and time again in the Gospels, every time Jesus is with them and fishing is involved, he's got to help them. Well, see, there's a reason. It's not that they were lousy fishermen. He's doing something there. He's teaching them something there. You need me to do anything of any value or worth or lasting impact. You need me. You must depend always upon me. That's the first thing. The second is this. And our service to him, it needs our, our vision, what we see, needs to go so far beyond our expectations. 153 fish well, in nets beyond the boatload, because they can't get it in the boat, barely able to get it to the shore. What is that meant to convey to them? In reflecting on this in the years to come, they would have to have seen at least these two things. Through me, there are going to be more converts to this message than you can count. And as far as the impact of this message, as, the, as I am the king and the kingdom of God is coming and the message of the kingdom and the message of the king, the extent of that impact is going to go far beyond your expectations. In this broken world filled with disease and emptiness and uh, broken relationships and poverty and injustice and in racism, the kingdom of God is coming. Undoing all of that, slowly but surely. Bringing healing. Bringing fullness. Bringing reconciliation. Bringing peace. Bringing wholeness. Bringing justice. There, is, there are no limits to what he is going to do. Unmaking the damage. Remaking this world. In the Christian life, it means to follow Him. The expectations, when you consider who this king is, ought to be awfully high in terms of what he can do. 
And, you know, going back to John 15, we see something of that there as well, just picking up where we left off. In verse 3, Already you, have, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in the vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. So, okay, we've talked about what the job description of the vine dresser is. What's the job description of the branch? Hey, branch, good morning. What's on your to-do list today? Abide in the vine. Stay close, connected. Find your life in the vine. And what's the result of that? Fruit. Vitality. Flourishing. Reproducing. And it's the only way. Jesus makes very, very clear that this is the only way. Now, why, why is this so important for us to grapple with? Because innately, inherently, in what it means to be a human being, we have a desire to produce. We have a desire to, to, sh to show something of ourselves, to make something of ourselves, to do something, to, to, to be productive in, in some way. But that said, at the, at the same time, we also have this tendency to rely on ourselves on our cleverness, on our plans, on our training, on our gifts, on our experience, on our know-how. We take all these gifts of God and allow them to be warped and twisted into substitutes for God. Which then, you know, you transfer that over into the realms of our relationships, relying on self and, and I'm going to trace, just trace this out along those lines. In our parenting, in our marriages, in our ministries, in our careers, in our studies, fill in the blank, rely on self, branch, disconnected from vine, what are you left with? Deadness, emptiness, foolishness, futility, nothing. Nothing is what we're left with. So what's the lesson? Jesus is saying to Peter there on the shore, walking on that when I, yeah, walking on that beach at that point. Follow me. Look to me as you serve me. Don't look to yourself as you serve me and follow me. Follow me. Look to me. Rely upon me. It's it's not as you're accustomed to. It's not as you think. It's not as you're. It's not with me. Now. Just wrapping this up, I just, you know, I have to admit this. It's not like I've got this down. Um, I can just tell you what it's saying. It's not always easy. There's a part of us that resists this, that chafes against all of this. At the same time, any of you who've been walking with Jesus any amount of time at all would then also testify to this. Yes, I, I resist it. Yes, I chafe against it. But I tell you, there's a rightness to it. There's a fulfillment that comes with it. There's, there's somehow a fittedness to it, almost like I was made for it. You, oh, wait, you know why? You were. You were. Uh, think Cinderella for a minute. 
Okay, so there's this movie out right now. And by the way, I really in, in, encourage you to go see it. Um, it's, it's quite good. Which, of course, is a story in more ways than one of fittedness. Uh, what do I mean by that? Okay, well, you know the story, right? You, you don't? Okay, I'll tell you. Um, so there's this uh, young girl who's horribly mistreated and abused by her stepmother and her stepsisters, right? Then there's this handsome prince, and the prince, they throw this ball, and, and the girl goes, and, and, and the prince is enamored with her, and she throws the slipper, not at him, but it just comes off of her foot. And, and so the, the search is all across the kingdom as far and wide as to find the girl that, with, on whom the, the slipper will fit. And, and they find the girl, and the slipper fits, they get married, and they live happily ever after. Well, of course, there's fittedness in the sense of the slipper fits, but I want to go further than that. The story fits. The story fits. It resonates. Why do you think that story has lasted so long? Why is it done so well when it's well told in the box office? Because there's something about it that resonates down deep in the human soul. For one, this a story that has a moral center to it. Or as, as the line goes in, in the film, have courage and be kind. And the beauty, the beauty of, of forgiveness offered. I don't want to be a, I'm going to spoil it. But, but one other thing, a happy ending in a world that is so cold and cynical. We weren't made for tragic endings. Understand? We weren't made for irresolvable disputes. We're made for something that ends beautifully. It fits us. I know it sounds crazy, but I'm telling you, Cinderella fits us, like all the great stories do. Like the gospel story does. Like serving Christ does, because you were made for it. And that's why it fits. That's why it fits. You are made to walk with him, to follow behind him, to follow in his steps where he goes. And by the way, close beside him. You are made for that. We were, are never more human. We are never more human than when we lay down our self-righteousness, our self-dependency, and our self-determining ways and then give ourselves to him and follow him. You are never more human than when you are following Jesus. And we are never less human than we're not. Follow him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this candid portrayal of Peter that we find here in your word. And, and thank you for your honesty with us. I thank you for your patient work with Peter. Thank you for your love of him, that this deep love such that you were willing and determined to love him well. And that showing us something of the way you deal with all of your followers. We need this. We need to know this. I pray that you'd help us to, to hear the words, follow me when we blow it. As we're growing as we're serving. Help us hear and heed these words to follow you. Despite how different it feels, despite how it chafes and we want to resist this, help us to hear it and to follow you. In your name we pray. Amen.